0: Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Cire de Monde Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki Nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org.
1: Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next.
2: Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we will discuss the making of birch bark canoes, a little bit of history behind that, uh, and uh, the importance of them in, in our culture. Uh, the, my guest today is uh, James Francis, Tribal Historian and Director of the Penobscot Nation Cultural Center, Uh, as well as Penobscot elder uh, Butch Phillips. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Donna. Um, So I think we're going to open with some events that are coming up. Uh, James, um, do you want to talk about those?
0: Sure, Donna. So um, we have basically three events that are coming up, and um, we actually have placed birch bark canoes around the city of Bangor, one at the mall, and uh, one at Epic Sports in downtown. Uh, advertising for for these events, and the fir- first one is on August second at the Bangor Public Library. Uh, me and Butch Phillips will be doing a talk, uh, birch bark canoes in Penobscot sense of place. Um, that's August second at five thirty at the Bangor Public Library. Following up that on. August 5th, Sunday, August 5th on Indian Island, we're going to have a full day. Um, First of all, we're going to um, have a birch bark canoe flotilla starting at 9 a.m. to noon. And then in the afternoon, we're going to have a Wabanaki social gathering. So traditional Wabanaki uh, dancing, drumming, singing, that sort of thing in the afternoon. Uh, the really great thing about the morning activities and the flotilla, we have a birch bark canoe that we made in our community um, that has yet to be launched. We um, are going to pitch it on that weekend and do a uh, ceremony and launch it into the Penobscot River. And uh, that's quite a uh, quite a scene if you've ever seen it. So um, I encourage people to come up and visit our community on August 5th.
2: So okay, so we're looking at two events or three. You just
0: uh... well, the, the the three is the uh, the Birch Bark Canoe Flotilla, the Wabanaki social gathering, and then the third one was the August second talk at the Bangor Public Library.
2: Okay, got it. Uh, all right, so um, Butch, welcome to the show.
1: Glad to be here, Donna.
2: Good to have you. Um, let's let's uh, talk about some uh, some history. I know you're good at that, so
1: <laughs> well the uh, it's interesting uh the history of the the origin of the birch bark canoe um, archaeologists tell us that uh you know the after the glaciers receded uh, about nine thousand years ago um, the state of Maine, which is now the state of Maine in this locality in the northeast uh, was mostly uh tundra and uh, perfect environment for growing of the uh, the necessities material uh, for the birch bark canoe, namely the white birch, the black spruce, and, and and the cedar. And although we can't put a definite date on on the uh, the origin of the of the canoe or who actually made the first birch bark canoes, um, we as uh, the Wabnaki believe that um, you know the origin was up here in the northeast. Um, the, some of the southern tribes had uh, the dugout canoes. However, um, in this area, we also had dugout canoes, but they were used mostly in the, in the estuaries of the, the St. John and the St. Lawrence River, um, used mostly in, in the ocean, um, whereas the dugout canoe uh, was heavy. Uh, it was not practical for use in our rivers, uh, the Penobscot, the Saint Croix, the Kennebec, and, and so forth, um, because of the, the the many rapids and the long carries around the rapids, uh, which made uh, the use of the dugout canoe um, very impractical. The uh, birch bark canoe, uh, in contrast, is 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 lightweight, and uh, it is it can carry a lot of uh, um, dunnage in Wangan, as we call it, and can, can be carried around the the various rapids and falls. And it is made entirely uh, from materials gathered in, in the forest. The bark of the uh, birch, the white birch, uh, is used, and the white cedar is used for the, the wood, uh, the interior of the, of the canoe, and the uh, ash or birch is made for the the cross members called the thwarts, and it is all tied together by using the roots of the of the black spruce tree, and also uh, the waterproofing is made using the, either pine pitch or spruce pitch, um, put on the seams which are sewn by uh, using black spruce root again uh, for waterproofing. The Penobscots. Uh, Called their canoe Aquein, which literally means uh floats lightly and uh it, it is very fast compared to the uh european boat um which is is very heavy, and when the Europeans first came here, they marvelled at the uh the vessel the birch bar canoe um which could carry a large amount of of uh gear and people and yet uh, is, is very fast compared to the their boat, which was rowed. And another advantage of the canoe is that the uh, it can be uh, driven by one paddler or a pole, poling mm-hmm. up upstream. And you're facing in in the direction of your your travel, so you can read the, read the rapids, read the water uh, ahead of you. So it's very very interesting. The construction of the of the uh, birch bark canoe. As I mentioned, uh, is made from all materials gathered in, in the forest. Now, one could make uh, a birch bark canoe by having only uh, an axe, uh, a knife, and an awl. And uh, with that axe, you get, you gather the the birch bark and and the spruce root and and so forth. And uh, the construction. The modern-day construction is exactly the same as our ancestors did. We do use some modern metal tools, and uh, uh, the crooked knife, uh, which is a metal uh, knife, uh, some people say there was actually an invention of the, of the French people in Canada, but uh, that's the tool that you use for the construction of all the wooden materials in, in the canoe. And I've been asked a number of times um, about the birch bark canoes, why is it brown? And the, the white birch is naturally white. Well, the white is inside. And the, the more smooth brown uh, layer of the bark is on the outside because you want the smoothness of the bark. Uh, uh, you don't want uh, uh, the, the roughness of the bark to impede your, your progress. And also, if you have a crack in the bark, you can see it from the from the brown side. And um, also, the uh, the white birch, um, the um, the um, the white birch can be sown without being torn uh, to extend the length length of the canoe. So there's a lot of advantage of the of the uh, the white birch, the. The black spruce. The reason we use the spruce tree is because the 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 spruce root grows parallel to the top of the ground. It doesn't grow down like other trees, so it's very easy to to uh, harvest. And when you use it to sow the canoe, uh, everything is wet. And when it's when it hardens, it's it's there, and it, and it can last a hundred years and long as, long as it's not it's not damaged.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, James, you there?
1: I am here. Uh, so,
2: uh, do you have anything to add to the history piece of the use of the canoe?
0: Well, for me, it's um, you know I um, I'm a historian, but I'm also a, a geographer, and understanding the landscape is really important to me. And I can't get beyond um, how vitally important birch bark canoe was to our cultural cultural ways. Um, You know, for the large number of Wabanaki people that were here living on these watersheds um, that kind of feed the Gulf of Maine, we as a people couldn't survive living all in one place year-round. Sure, you could do that on the coast in 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 the summertime. There was enough food sources there. But when it came to hunting season... We'd break up into kinship groups, our families, and move inland to prescribed hunting territories, territories that kind of got passed down through the families generation after generation. And you would always return to those places where you knew where the best hunting was, you know, where all the berries were, and you're preparing for winter. And you would winter over with your family. And then in the spring, you'd make make your way... You know, back out into uh, heading towards the coast, stopping at uh, falls to do some fishing and collecting that. So, um, you know, we had a very sophisticated kind of seasonal uh, migration going on here. And um, with the boreal forest that's here in the north, um, the easiest way to travel is by water, using the rivers, streams, lakes, and ponds as as the roadway and the birch bark canoe, um, the vehicle that could get you there. And
2: now, you, you mentioned the burial forest. Yeah. Explain that to me.
0: Well, um, aside from, like, in southern New England, they had um, a hardwood forest and, you know, big tall trees with canopies that were quite separate from the undergrowth. Um, and Native Americans there would burn twice a year uh, one for for ease of travel we don 't have that opportunity for real you know a lot of um, conifers that go right to the ground that um, burning large tracts of uh, forest here just creates a forest fire you know where in southern New England we could burn the undergrowth without lighting the canopy on fire um, so a very dense type of forest, um, not easily to travel through you know a lot of bogs, a lot of um, you know those type of swampy areas also. So So what?
2: okay. So if you have a, a birch bark canoe mm-hmm. and you're going through these swampy bogs,
0: well, you wouldn't need, need to heavy? go through. <laughs> well, um no, as uh as Butch mentioned, a guedin is the Panopská word for Yeah, but
2: what's light? You compare it, a canoe, a birch bark to an aluminum. I mean, <laughs> not saying they had aluminum back then, but I'm trying to you know, figure out that well, heavy. Well,
1: basically, uh, if you take the birch bark canoe and a modern uh, wood canvas canoe, a fiberglass canoe, or aluminum canoe, they all weigh about the same, eighty to eighty-five pounds. A fourteen or fifteen foot canoe is going to weigh sixty pounds, right? But as far as speed is concerned and maneuverability. Uh, you can't compare a birch bark canoe to an aluminum canoe, for instance, because it's, it's yeah. the, the uh, birch bark canoe is much more uh, maneuverable and, and, and so faster. So what's,
2: what's the average length of a birch bark? Uh, I'm going say average, a good
0: length. To- 18.
1: Well, there were three types of canoes. Yeah. There was the ocean-going canoe, which was uh, 18 to 22 feet, let's say, and much broader and deeper and then the river canoe, which we are uh, famous for, uh, was normally uh, 16 to 18 feet, and that was enough to carry your family and, and your, all your gear and your back for the wigwam and so forth. Um, and then there was the, uh, what they call the, the hunting canoe, which was, uh, you know, 11 to 14 foot, uh, which was small and wide, and that was used more... Uh, that you'd leave on a on a pond or a, or a place where you would frequent hunting, but it wasn't for long-distance travel or carrying a lot of hmm,
2: Interesting. Gear. I didn't know that.
1: So, so you know,
0: the very important thing about it being lightweight is uh, very easy to heft over your head and carry through the woods, which is a very important cultural concept because it wasn't, for us, it wasn't just about paddling in, in one river. You can travel the Sawadapskook and Hamden to the headwaters of that stream, take a quarter-mile walk through the woods with your canoe over your head and put it into a pond that is in the headwaters of the Sebasticook. And if you follow that down, you're in the Kennebec River. So the 75-mile journey from river to river was a shortcut. Um, but these portages are all over the place. They link places like Moosehead Lake to the West Branch. They um, link the East Branch to the Aroostook River. They uh, link the West Branch to the uh, Allagash. Um, Matta- Mattawumkig River, which I call the Highway East, You know, linked us to uh, places like the Machias Rivers, the Union Rivers, um, as well as um, the Aroostook and the St. John.
2: So there's lots of rivers and ponds. Yes. In me. You see that, you know, if you're flying in and -hmm. you look, that's all you see is like rivers and and ponds. And so, yeah.
0: And if you look at the ancient place names, they tell us a lot about kind of what's going on in certain places. You know, Herman Pond, for instance, is the literal translation means a place where you have to make a decision. And when you get to Herman Pond, you need to turn right and go towards the Kanduskig, or you go left as you travel across to the uh, Kennebec. Huh.
2: You can kind of, that's sort of like a synergy of what's going on today, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, All right. So um, when you you build, when you decide you're going to make a canoe, what's the first thing you do? I mean, oh, let's back up. What's the best time of year? to find a birch bark or to start making a birch bark?
1: Well, normally it's, it's in the summer because the bark uh, comes off the tree much easier. It doesn't stick to the you know, to the tree like it would in the wintertime. However, um, there are two different types of bark that we, we call the summer bark and the winter bark. The only difference is that the winter bark has a, uh, a dark brown rind on it And if you wet that rind, if you wet that rind and scrape away the rind with a knife, you can leave uh, uh, etching on there and make designs of uh, the Penobscot designs, animals, and so on and so forth. And the summer bark is much lighter, almost yellow. But the the thickness may may be the same. Uh, But there is uh, numerous differences in the types of bark. So when you're looking at a tree, uh, for qual- the bark that's quality for a canoe, it has to be thick. Number one, um, it can't split because the layers uh, have a tendency to split, and also it must be very flexible. And what we call horizontal eyes; those horizontal eyes will will split uh, when you when you go to bend them.
2: Yeah. No. You know, the environmentalists or whatever are going to ask you, is this process going to kill the tree?
1: Well, when I, when I build, I take the bark for build a, uh, a birch bark canoe, I cut the tree down, okay? And then take the bark off. It's much, much easier, naturally, that so kills the it tree. It does
2: kill the tree. However,
1: uh, you can take the bark off a tree by using a ladder or putting uh, spikes in the tree to climb it and take the bark off that way. And if you don't damage the cambium, which is the next layer under the— Which is a darker uh, layer. Yes, and yes. it's thicker, um, then that tree will live. And the, um, the gatherers who take the bark off it's of safe baskets, and I, I take it off for making moose calls, you take it off in, in sections—I uh, take 40-inch sections, and uh, that does not kill the tree. And I can show you trees up on our islands that I know bark has been taken off 60, 70 years ago, and that tree is still living. Wow. And I've taken bark off in trees myself that are, that are still living. However, if you, if you damage the cambium, the, the inner layer, um, then it has a tendency to really damage a tree and, and can kill it. But uh, in ease of, of gathering the bark for, for a canoe, um, I always cut the, cut the tree down.
2: I have no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so birch bark is is really, it's very uh, usable in, in not only canoes, but in other, it has other uses, right?
1: Oh, yeah. It was so, very versatile.
2: What what did we use them for?
1: Uh, well, wigwam housing
0: is made out of uh, birch bark panels. I um, could make a ladle. We have a uh, birch bark container called a sea habajo in in the language, and that's actually a birch bark container that's watertight, and you can actually boil water in it. Wow. So a lot of different, um, not just um, those type of vessels, but wider large dish type of uh, gathering baskets to gather berries, uh, very shallow but very wide. Um, This is a whole host of...
1: um, Torches also yeah, and they uh, gathered uh, maple syrup in mm. in a uh bark vessel mm. um as I mentioned, I make uh, moose calls uh, for for our hunters out of birch bark, which is traditional um and the uh, the crafts our craftspeople make uh, uh baskets fancy baskets out of a birch bark that are etched um, uh, yeah. I make uh small baskets i make birch uh, Waste paper baskets, medicine baskets, and all ki- all kinds of things out of out of birch, and because you can use it for um, decorative, you know, jewelry, uh, hats, capes, all all kinds of things. It's very very versatile. Mm-hmm. I've been caught out in the fir- forest gathering bark and in, in a thunderstorm and pouring down rain, and so I took a piece of my bark and sat under it, you know, until the storm. So it's another yeah. another use of it.
2: Oh, interesting. In some stories old story. I don't know if this is how true this is but evidently there used to be like these you when it got really dry there used to be like lightning strikes which would start a forest on fire and it, and tell me if this is true that people would take their canoes and go into the water and get under them
1: and be safe is that or is that well, just a you mean get under the canoe yeah oh I slept on the canoe many times. When I was a kid
2: in the water. I mean, to get away from the fire.
1: Oh, put oh the,
2: I, they turn the canoe upside down on the water and get under there for the. That would that work? And with a,
1: a bridge, I uh, don't see canoe? why not. Just... I'd never heard that story, but no, I uh, haven't either. Yeah, I think it would. Yeah, huh? But for for a shelter, uh, you know, when you get ready to go to bed at night, turn the canoe over and 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 claw, crawl under it. I've done that when I was a, when I was a kid many times. Huh.
0: I have heard that they would um, they would sink the birch bark canoe at the, to the bottom of a lake to store it for the winter.
1: So, yes. Oh, yeah. Ah. yeah. There was two ways of storing it. One was like you said, James, sinking it in the in the in the water, and also um, turn it upside down off the ground so that the porcupines don't get it, and put put a shelter over it of made of. Uh, 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 sticks and boughs to keep the snow from crushing it uh, and then just, you know, uncover oh. it in the spring.
2: Well, you'd think that if it was put, sunken in the water and after the ice leaves or whatever, that it would be, like, misshapen or something?
1: No, we preserve it, because huh. it, it. And when you build a bush park and everything is wet. The bark is wet, the cedar is wet, the, so, the spruce okay. root right. is wet.
2: So you... In these different steps that you do, you, like, take uh, hot water and pour that over different, like, the, the strings or the roots or whatever to make them pliable. You put that in a...
1: Well, you soak to, everything first. Soak them, okay. Right? Like the birch bark. The roll of birch bark uh, is sunk in the river okay. for about two days. And then when you uh, unroll it, you put hot water in it just so it won't break or crack. Okay. And the spruce root is because it's wet, and the cedar, the ribs, you actually boil them or steam them, and you you bend them by hand, and that's all done by eye, before you put them in. Huh. The gunnels are put on uh, wet, and because you got different uh, uh, bends in the gunnels, uh, you got it not only going, going around a, a slight curve, but it's it's elevated as well at the ends. So that has to be wet. That has to be heated, so it doesn't break. So everything is done uh, wet. So sinking it in a river or a bog over over the winter um, won't bother well, it at you all. No shape it
2: or anything. No. Nope.
1: Huh?
2: No. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so in the process of making this this canoe, you you take the sheets of. Bridge bark, right? Big ones, and you lay them out? One sheet. One sheet, not more than one.
1: Well, one sheet. if I built two canoes yeah. myself, and I've worked on a number of other canoes. Uh, the two I built was one piece of bark, a 14-footer and for an 18-footer. All right, If the bark is not wide enough, the diameter of the tree, let's say it's 15 inches, that's not going to be wide enough in the, in the middle of the canoe. So therefore, you've got to sew on a panel on each side to make it wide enough in the middle. It's always going to be long, wide enough at the ends because you're pulling it, pulling it together. So that's the only time you use another another piece of bark. And if you're lucky, you can get a tree big enough that you, only, you can make the canoe out of a single piece of bark. And I know where there's several trees that are in the 22-inch diameter range for... That is that is very suitable for for a. Uh,
2: well, I didn't think they had that those bigger trees anymore. They're
1: very scarce, and yeah. I'm fortunate to know where this because I cruise an awful lot in the woods looking for them. You know, especially early in the spring, just after the snow is out, and uh, uh, but they're very hard to find. Good quality bark is becoming very rare. Yeah,
2: Jim, Amina.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> James, do you
0: have anything to add? Um, sure. You know, um, when, when, I, when I really think about the birch bark canoe and its role and you know, understanding uh, this kind of sense of place, it, I really um, think about there was a, a, a cultural geographer who said that, you know, space plus culture equals place. So you can kind of pull the culture out of that. And supplant it with you know today we've got a maine western kind of sense of place here in Maine, but you can take that cultural piece and you can replace it with uh, Penobscot culture and you start to take the same Penobscot River valley um, and you start to see it differently. start looking at the uh, the canoe roots and understanding um, the role of the canoe you know within that and one thing that always really amazed me was uh the role of the beaver in our ability to uh canoe large distances because it was those beavers that would make that stream that is uncanoeable highly canoeable uh by building dam after dam creating these chain of ponds they're called um and you can get a uh, way inland to a you know fishing spot or uh you know, a hunting place, and, um, you know, just by what the beavers have done.
1: Well. You know, I often marvel uh, at how how long it took for our ancestors um, to perfect a certain part of the canoe or the, or the canoe itself. Um, you take the birch by a canoe, you cannot improve on that canoe unless you use nails or glue or some synthetic uh, covering. The birch bark canoe, like I said, is made all of natural uh, materials. And when I'm working, when I'm gathering the materials or working on the canoe, I marvel at the ingenuity of our ancestors and how long it took to perfect a, a certain portion of that canoe uh, for instance, the uh, what we call the stem piece, the piece that shapes the bow and the stern, that curvature. Um, you take a piece of cedar, three foot long, and you split it uh, lengthwise eight times, or at least eight times, and then you you because it's heated, wet, and you bend it, and you wrap the inner back of the basswood tree around it to. Hold its shape. Well, why the the inner bark of the basswood tree? Well, when you are sewing the ends of the canoe to make it waterproof, you actually put the put the uh, the spruce root directly through those laminations. First, you drive your, either your knife or an awl in there to make the make the hole, and you put the inner bark of the basswood tree through that, and you sew you wrap it, and. Um, if you were to use a spruce root, let's say, for instance, you put the all of the knife in there, it would break. The brasswood tree, the inner bark of the, the basswood tree is such that you put a knife through it, it just separates, and it'll close right back up again, it won't, it won't break. So how long did it take our ancestors on a hit-and-miss basis to come up with, that's the right way to do it, the, the best way to do it, and we still do it today? You can't improve on it. It, it really, um, I marvel do, do it. Do all
2: it, of the, like, say the Algonquian or the other tribes that do birch, birch bark canoes, do they all use basswood for that, or
1: does I, it vary? I'm not sure. You don't know? I'm not sure. Um, they all use uh, spruce root. Um, some wrap the entire gunnel with spruce root. We wrap, uh, uh, we have a space uh, let's say three inches between each each uh, segment of, of spruce root wraps, which is, is different. And it's uh, just uh, um, up to the builder in that particular uh, tribe on, on on building your canoe, the shape of it, and, and and so forth. And you can readily tell the difference between a a Penobscot or Maliseet canoe from a Mi'kmaq canoe.
2: What's the difference?
1: Well, the Mi'kmaq canoe is, is low, rounded ends, but what is most distinguishable is in the middle, there's a hump right in the middle, the midship, hmm. and is believed to, because they use them in, in, in the ocean, and in, in they're big rivers, um, and when you're pulling a fish in, let's say a big fish, a porpoise, something, and your t- your canoe has a tendency to tip, those high... Uh, midships keeps it from uh taking in water and hmm. so it's it's very distinguishable uh, between our our canoes Wow
0: you know um what I what I find amazing and you know with this I think the Wabanaki communities for the last 20 years or so have been in this kind of uh um, birch bark canoe revitalization and um I know the Penobscots have had four classes where Wabanaki people have come in to learn how uh, to build these, and um, there's a lot of trickle-down from that. You know, Butch talks about the two that he made, um, but he um, it was a part of those four in the community also. And for me, it's, it's amazing to see these on the water. You know, these are beautiful um, crafts, and um, for a guy who works in museums and always see the... You know, the old ones that probably will never see the water again. Um, it's great to see this, you know, this traditional craft take, take to the water. It's just amazing, um, you know, to be able to paddle that. And, um, you know, I had the honor of paddling, this is back in 2004, um, a birch bark canoe at dawn in the Potomac River for the grand opening of the National Museum for the American Indian. Wow. So they asked the people of the dawn to, you know, open that ceremony, and, and we did that by paddling um, a brand-new birch bar canoe in the Potomac.
2: Where's that canoe now?
0: That canoe um, usually hangs in the, um, in the library of the Indian Island School, that canoe. Um, but today it's in Center Court at the Bangor Mall on display for people to go see.
1: There's an important cultural aspect in um, building of and use of the, the birch bark canoe. For instance, um, when I took my boys out to harvest the bark uh, for our canoe, I told them, first of all, about the, the importance of that, of that particular tree. And when we felled the tree and took the bark off in it and rolled it up and got ready to carry it out, um i took out a pouch of uh tobacco and some of our medicines and had each one of them to put the bark on on the fallen tree first of all and then on on the bark and uh you know thanking the creator and thanking the tree uh for the bark and then we when we started building the canoe we unrolled the bark getting ready to start the construction we again sprinkled tobacco and our medicines on the bark and again, given given thanks, and then when the canoe was completely uh, uh, completed, and then we were going to launch it, uh, you know, said a, said a little prayer, and again put the tobacco in the canoe, uh, again thanking the the creator and thanking the the uh, Mother Earth for providing all the materials. When we built the first canoe on Indian Island, the first one in sixty years, um. The next day after we launched it, uh, we paddled that to Katahdin uh, up the mm-hmm. Penobscot as far as uh, Park Wackamas Falls, which is about 85 miles. And when my son and I were carrying the canoe, the birch bark canoe, over the Depskanique carry. Now, that carry has been used for thousands of years and countless uh, generations have carried canoes up and down that carry. And when we are carrying that canoe halfway up the carry, uh, I mentioned to my son, I said, let's put the canoe down and just just lay down here. And we are actually uh, walking in the same footsteps that our ancestors carried the canoes up and down this carry, you know, thousands of years. And there was a very strong connection there uh, to our ancestors because we, we were doing the same thing. And carrying that canoe up the over the falls, by the falls, up river, was probably the first time in over 100 years that anybody had carried it up the river. There had been, you know, numerous people coming down the river. But it was quite significant that we were making our way to Katahdin uh, in a birch bark canoe. Well,
2: Powerful stuff. It was. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, um, James?
0: Yes, Donna? Comments?
2: You were talking a little bit about uh, Thoreau, about something that Thoreau said.
0: Yeah, you know, there's, um, so Thoreau comes here to Maine and, 1846, 1853 and 1857 and his trips in 53 and 57 he hired Penobscot guides and the first one was Joe Atien. and they made their way to Greenville on stagecoach and the canoe birch bark canoe was strapped onto the stagecoach and in 53 they um, they put the They put the canoe on uh, the steamer, like the Katahdin that's up there now in Greenville, and they they rode that all the way to northeast Cary and then took the canoe off of that boat and made their way across the Cary. But with Joe Polis in 57, he had Joe paddle the length of Moosehead Lake. And um, And how big
2: is that lake?
0: Oh God! Forty miles. Forty yeah. miles. Yeah, 40 wow! Miles. It's, okay. it's quite significant, and um, so Thoreau wrote about um, paddling the the length of Moosehead Lake with poles, and he said, "Think of our little eggshell of a canoe tossing across that great lake, our mere black speck to an eagle soaring above it." So I mean that's kind of in Thoreau kind of poetic way. But, um, you know, he calls it an, a little eggshell of a, a canoe, which I think is kind of a misnomer.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, most people yeah. who write about the birch bark canoe always call it a fragile craft. And it, because it they not. equate it
2: with paper or something. I, I, you I, know, I think
1: so, bad. yeah, because it's a paper birch, right? Uh. But, uh, you know, the, the birch bark canoe can take... Quite quite a uh, a hit on a rock or or you know a, a scratch or whatever, and uh, it, yes it is sewn together with spruce root on on the seams, but uh, that bark is, is is quite tough, and uh, probably uh, it would take as much damage or uh, uh, have more, uh, as much damage as a, as a uh, canvas canoe if you scraped it on a, on a rock. But uh, the beauty of the birch bark canoe, if you if you do damage the bark, you take it ashore, turn it over, and you light a piece of birch bark and you heat it up so uh, heat up the the, the uh, crack or the seam um, to dry it, and then put a new pitch on it and and you're on your way. And uh, when I was a kid, if you if you made a, had a crack or a rip in a in a canvas canoe, uh, we always used to put a piece of uh, Cheesecloth, or cloth, and then cover it with shellac, and then wait, wait for it to dry. Right. But the the pitch dries almost immediately, so you can you can proceed. And every uh, every canoe, where
2: all, do you get the pitch, all
1: I was just going to say, every <laughs> canoe had a bucket or a birch bark container with pitch all prepared in it. Wow! And mentioning the the pitch, you don't use the bark, the pitch right directly off the off the tree. You have to treat it first. You can use it directly off the tree, but you don't want it to run when uh, it gets hot and you don't want it to be brittle when it gets cold. Therefore, you mix it with animal fat. I save the, mm-hmm. the fat off the boost that I harvest every year, and I render it, and I mix that with, the, with the, the pine pitch or spruce pitch and a little bit of wood ash. And it must... Uh, pass two tests, two crucial tests, before the the pitch is ready, so that it doesn't uh, crack when it's cold or it doesn't run when it's in the sun. So, and th- and those tests are uh, quite crucial. and takes it takes quite a while to get the per- pitch uh, exactly the way you want it uh, to go on the canoe. And I always carry a. a yeah, so my next question
2: wasn't. is how do you test it? What's the test?
1: Well, after you, you, a, you're okay. going to heat it up <laughs> and not, not boil it. If you boil it, it turns black. And uh, you just heat it up enough to melt it and then put the animal fat in it, usually 20% animal fat. And then just a pinch of, of uh, wood ash, which tempers it a little bit. And then once you've got that all melted together, you take a stick, and put the stick in the bucket, and you reach you you take the stick and raise it above your head, and you're going to have a a beat or the uh, uh, stream of of pitch. And if it doesn't break, it's ready. And even if in a slight breeze, it'll bend. There'll be a slight bend in it. You know it's all ready. But if it breaks, it's not ready yet. You put a little bit. More pitch in it, or put a little bit more animal fat in it. Right, and the second test is you take a piece of birch bark, dip it into the into the pitch, and then blow on it or stick it in water, let it coat, let it cool, and then bend the bark. And if the pitch breaks, it's no good because it's it's gonna it's gonna shatter uh, uh, in the cold. And then you put your hand over it to heat it up. And if it doesn't become sticky or run, you know it's good. And if it's not, you gotta put some more pitch in and or or put well, some you more. You know that fat must in.
2: be quite a process. It, it to, is. To it takes it
1: takes a while. That's why I say when I when I do it, I make a lot. And I always carry that extra in the pitch pail so forth and always in the canoe. And so that you can repair your canoe. Huh.
2: Who says we're not chemists,
1: huh? <laughs> <laughs> and in modern modern day transportation you pitch you pitch the canoe getting ready uh, to use, and then you throw it on top of your pickup truck to transport it somewhere and because you've got it tied down and the and the pickup is is moving it 's racking and it always opens up the cracks the the seams the pitch cracks, and so forth, so you always have to repitch it before you you put it in the in the water so there's a lot of there 's yeah. a lot of work to keep it good.
2: I remember you telling me James about a canoe that uh, kind of would you say blew up <laughs> what happened with that
0: <laughs> uh, so we we have a um actually the canoe that's at Epic Sports currently is affectionately called the first third canoe so it was the first canoe that was constructed and um it was it was in our uh one of our Meeting rooms um, at the at the tribe, and it was February, and it was nice and cozy in that he- heated room and um, A tribal member was taking the um, canoe to a boat show in February, and he took it outside and he put it on his car and he strapped it to its his car, and the whole side just blew out and so um We finished the second canoe, which is the one that's at the Bangor Mall, um, and then took all the pieces from the first canoe and found a new piece of bark and rebuilt it. So that's the first, third story.
1: We won't mention any names. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the reason it did that, the bark has uh, resin in it. That's why you heat it up uh, in order to make it pliable so that you can uh, bend it and, and, and shape it and so forth. And uh, that resin, uh, when it was in the in the warm room, was very fluid and supple. And he took it out. It was below zero that particular day, and that resin just all of a sudden, you know, became cold and and had nowhere to go, and it, it ruptured that that back. And that was the first canoe that we built uh, on Indian Island. Uh, wow. Hmm.
2: You know who you are out there. <laughs>
0: So, um, you know, we, 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 see, we see these stories all the time in the news about these older, older canoes. And, you know, one, uh, one older canoe that we, we won't see in the flotilla, uh, but it is at the, um, the Penobscot Nation Museum, is a uh, canoe that was uh, made by Joe Polis. And when uh, Joe Polis was paddling with Thoreau, it, at the end of that journey, they make their way to Indian Island, and um, Polis is trying to sell him. The canoe and uh, so they go into some detail about uh, the length and you know the measurements of the canoe and uh, which happened to be the exact measurements of the polis canoe that we have at the indian island Mu- museum so we think it's the um, exact canoe that he took thoreau on in 1857
1: hmm. wow. well incidentally the uh, the first canoe that i built was a 14 footer um, i'd i'd built a lot of scale model ones before that and then I attempted to build the, the big one the 14-foot and I went to the museum and I took all the measurements off in that canoe and the measurements of my canoe are exact to that that particular one.
2: Wow. You still have that canoe that you?
1: Oh yeah it's a 14-footer that I built and I wanted to do it entirely myself. I gathered all the materials myself in the forest I, I split them, and I shaped them and everything, and I put the, built the canoe entirely myself. And uh, I, I wanted to do that when the, I'm building the, building the first one. And the second one was an 18-footer, and uh, two of my sons uh, wanted to build a family canoe. So we built an 18, 18-footer. And, it, you know, that's a beautiful uh, canoe as well.
2: So what about cedar? I see cedar canoes around quite a bit.
0: Like these um cedar strip canoes. Yeah.
2: I mean, I mean made, see, yeah, you see these like yeah. Yeah, cedar
1: yeah. strip. Yeah, with with the ribs in them and all mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. Yeah. This have uh, you done those or I haven't. Uh my yeah. brother Neil has built uh numerous uh strip canoes. Matter of fact, there's uh, still a couple in the in the in the state, uh twenty eight foot war canoes.
2: Wow. And
1: then um he built uh, a twenty eight footer that uh um uh, Thirteen of us Penobscots took to the Yukon River in Alaska, and we paddled 400 miles up the Yukon River in that particular canoe that that he built, and that was a cedar strip. Uh, They're very very popular uh, today, and um, but they're unlike the birch bark canoe. They're they're built uh, similar to the the canvas the canvas canoe, Um, whereas the the birch bark canoe you form. The back first, and then you put the planking and, and the ribs in uh, last. Whereas the the uh, canvas canoe or the strip canoe, uh, you have a form, and you put the planking on and the ribs uh, the ribs on first, and then the planking on it, and then you put the covering on it. And so it's the birch bark canoe is done uh, totally different.
2: So do you, do you use cedar at all in the uh, structure of the
1: Oh, yeah, it's a very, very important part of the canoe. The entire inside of the canoe, the planking is all uh, cedar, uh, anywhere from an inch wide to three inches wide, and, you know, like an eighth of an inch thick or even thinner in some cases. And that is all held in place by the ribs uh, made out of cedar, uh, which you shape and bend by hand and let them dry. And when you put those... Ribs in, they're actually pounded into place. They're jammed up underneath the the gunnel, and it holds the planking in place. And there's probably uh, somewhere in the order of uh, 45 to 50 ribs in in a fift, uh, 18 foot canoe. And if you took the ribs out of the out of the canoe, the entire inside planking would fall out because there's, there's no glue, there's no nails. It's all held in place by pressure.
2: Well, wow. so how much you said you do you, you use uh, spruce gum
1: or yes pitch yeah
2: pitch? How much of that do you actually use when you construct the canoe? Well,
1: do you use any of it? I mean, uh, oh, yes. Um, when you form the bark before you put the insides and in, put the planking in, uh, you waterproof the seams which you've sewn. Uh, first. Then you put the planking in. And uh, that, because you're going to have waterproofing inside and out. After you get the canoe completely constructed um, with the ribs in it and everything, you have the seams uh, which is in the back and on the ends which are sewn by spruce root. Those all have to be covered by pitch, the spruce pitch. And and the the uh, moose fat I was, I was telling you about. So that's, that's the waterproofing. And uh, without it, those seams would, and the ends would, w- would leak. So it was a very important part of the uh, hmm. construction.
2: So how long does it take to make? The, I know it probably varies, but... I,
1: I've been asked that question many yeah. times. And the last one we built, uh, that 18-footer a couple of years ago, I I kept track of the actual construction of of the of the canoe from the time we unrolled the bark and if the three of us worked let's say 4 hours on it you know I'd, I'd put down 12 hours if I worked on my my myself I'd put down those hours anyway construction from from start to finish was about 185 hours of actually putting the thing together that does not include all the shaping of the planking and the ribs uh, with a crooked knife, all by hand, numerous hours. And that does not include the gathering of the bark, which you spend days and days looking for. And you spend days and days looking for uh, cedar trees that are tall and straight and no limbs. And then you spend uh, a day digging the spruce root, yeah, that's
2: true. Root, uh, Butch. What, uh, now, uh, James was explaining a, a little bit about that. How it's like, uh, it goes out horizontally, that's sort right. of, in, in the ground. It's not; it doesn't go, de- you know, deep down. That's right. So it's so like a spidery kind of going out, exactly. And it's tough.
1: It is. Yeah. you have you have big roots, of course, in in the tree. You know. Yeah four to six inches. But you also have the small ones. And you dig next to the trunk of the tree. And this is usually in, a, in an area that's wet, as mossy as the best. And you find a piece of uh, spruce root um, that's the, the size of your thumb, let's say. And then you cut it off and start pulling it up, walking back away from the tree. And if it goes under another root, you pull it underneath you pull, you know dig it out and pull it underneath and i've walked back away from the tree you know for 15 or 16 feet wow. a piece of root that long and the beauty of the spruce root another another beauty of it is that it holds its diameter for uh, most of its length so that you take in a 16 foot piece of uh, spruce root it maintains its diameter for most of that and uh, it's very flexible, then you, you roll it up and, and, and bring it home, and then, then you have to take the bark off it and split it and split it and split it, and split it and to get it down to where you want it. Very versatile. Hmm.
2: Um,
1: and they also use it in making other the baskets as well.
2: The spruce, the birch uh, bark baskets? Yes, yes. Yeah.
0: Any comments, James? Well, I've, I've seen... Um you know, these canoes mate quite a bit and, you know, unfortunately as the tribe's historian, I'm always taking pictures and I've never really um, participated in making them, but have photographed all of them being built. And I can't help to notice that there's a, you know, because of all the carving that goes on, there's a ton of like cedar shavings, like on the ground. Um, is there something special you do with some of that?
1: Well, first of all, it makes great fire starters. But in the bow and the stern of the canoe, we actually stuff them with those shavings because the bow and the stern does not have any ribs, so there's no support in there. And so behind what we call the faceboard, we stuff it with with shavings and then put the faceboard in, and that uh, not only gives it buoyancy— but supports the back, keeps the shape of the back from, from, from collapsing. And there's a small deck on each end of the, um, the canoe, which keeps the splashes of the waves off in those um, the shavings. However, if, if, they get, if they get wet, you can snap that headboard out and replace the shavings. It's not easy to do, but you can, you can do it and put fresh shavings in. And you generate a lot of shavings when you uh, uh, carve in ribs and planking and, plank in and, and uh, the uh, gunnels. A lot of shavings.
2: Well, you could put them in your closet,
1: right? You, you could, yeah. <laughs> but people take uh, bags from home just yeah. for the sta- uh, fire starters. They're great.
0: Uh, I noticed in um, almost all the canoes, um, the center thwart of the canoe. Um, is not like the others. It has... Um, what do you mean? So, well, the cross pieces from side to side, you know, the bracing okay. in the canoe. They're called thwarts. Uh, gunnels are the, kind of around the outside, and these thwarts crisscross um, across the canoe.
1: And the center thwart has a shape to it. That's right. What uh, is that for? The The center thwart uh, has... has uh, I guess you'd call them notches on each end. Um, let's say uh, about twenty twenty percent of the thwart from from the from the gunnel. There's a there's a notch, and that's to put a tump line. Uh, you make a um, take the basswood tree, and you make you you braid it, and you make a like a rope, and then you put tie that onto that center thwart. When you put your canoe on your shoulders, you take that tump line and put it around your forehead, and it and it balances the canoe so you can use one hand or both hands to to carry stuff. And that tump line uh, keeps the canoe balanced because it's exactly in the middle. It's sitting on your shoulders, but that tump line uh, keeps it balanced with the, It's around your head, and and wow. the, and the notches keep the tump line from from slipping towards the middle. As it would without these notches, huh? Pretty and, amazing. And incidentally, there's no seats in a in a birch bark canoe like you would a modern yeah. canoe, so that you have uh, on each end uh, your your thwart, your thwart, and it's just a piece of uh, ash like the other the other thwarts, and you you kneel uh, in the canoe uh, with your butt against the thwart, and that's that's how you paddle. Hmm.
2: Interesting. So, um, just a reminder, um, there are actually two events, right? Well, there's one August 2nd. Is that correct, August 2nd?
0: Yeah, August 2nd at the um, Bangor Public Library at 530. Um, Me and Butch are going to be talking about... uh, Birch bark canoes, and uh, we'll have a birch bark canoe there on display, and um, you know detailed photographs of the making. Um, so birch bark canoes and sense of place. That's uh, August second at the Bangor Public Library, and then on August fifth on Indian Island, we're going to have a birch bark cl- canoe flotilla from nine to twelve, and then later on um, we're going to have a Wabanaki social gathering, drumming, dancing. You'll see people wearing regalia. And um, you know this is open to the public, and uh, we encourage people to come. And we will be uh, the Penobscot um, paddlers will be given canoe rides in the birch bark canoes. Free rides? Well, it's a fundraiser for for them to travel and uh, race canoes.
2: Sure, great, okay. Um, So uh, you've been listening to WERU Webanaki Windows. We've been talking about the uh, history and the building of birch bark canoes. And my guest uh, is uh, James Francis, tribal historian uh, and uh, director of the Penobscot Nation Cultural Center and Penobscot elder, uh, Butch Phillips. So uh, thank you for for joining us. And uh, join us again uh, next month for another Wabanaki Windows. Uh, The music... For our shows, it is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. And our engineer is Amy Brown. Thank you.
0: Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners. Thank you.